Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, good morning. So, uh, I'm facing a little dilemma this morning. I, uh, I, th- I shared with you last week that I thought the sermon was kind of uh, ADD, like I had like attention deficit, so it was like over here and over there and over here. So this morning's sermon is his OCD. It's, you know, we, we started a conversation at the beginning, so my dilemma is this. I can tell you that we're going to talk about something we've talked about before and you may have heard it, or I could just let you see if you remember. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll get to lunchtime and they'll say, what was the sermon about today? And I'll be like, um... I don't know if I can remember. Does that happen to you? What did the pastor talk about today? Uh, like if I said what I talk about last week, he'd be all like, hmm. We're kicking off this new series. It's called Say Grace. And here's what I want you to start to think about right now. What we see has a great deal to do with what we say. How you see the world, how you see life, how you see people, how you see relationships has a great deal to do with the words that come out of our mouths. And believe it or not, this is the last series of the church year, just meaning four weeks from today we kick off Advent and a new church year. I I know you may not quite be ready for all of that yet, but this is officially now the start of the holiday season. Next Saturday night you'll set your clocks back, that makes it all rather official It's really here. And over these next few weeks, four weeks, as we lead up into the season of Thanksgiving, Advent kicks off the week after Thanksgiving, I I want us to be a congregation and individuals who are saying grace, speaking it. We started the year talking about attitude, and we took that series uh, from the first five chapters of the book of Galatians. This little series is from the last chapter of the book of Galatians, chapter 6. So we will have, in the course of this year, made our way through the entire letter. And uh, so let me just give you a couple things. The OCD part of this is I can't get away from this little thought about saying grace. It sort of came up as we were doing the series originally, and I'll highlight that in just a moment. But then I, I was invited to speak this summer, and all I could think about was this topic, saying grace. So I've been a little obsessed with the idea and a little obsessed with what I think it means and why I think it's so vital and important. We started the year talking about attitude and how important it was, and I shared with you that my parents had a saying for us when we were little, and that was, I think you need an attitude adjustment. Did anybody else's parents have that expression? Yes. And so we frequently got our attitudes adjusted. That was not a long conversation. It wasn't a therapy session. It was a course correction. It's usually quick. You could need an attitude adjustment because you were failing to respect authority. I often got course corrected for failing to respect authority. If I came home from school, and this did happen frequently, and something had happened in the classroom, and I had talked too much, or, you know, any number of other things that might have randomly happened in the classroom... My folks didn't spend a lot of time parsing out what I said and what the teacher said and what 
the teacher was right and I needed to be adjusted. And so I frequently got adjusted. Authority was a thing. You kept the rules. It didn't matter if it was the neighbor who asked you to do something or not do something or your teacher or whatever. Respect for authority was a big deal and you got an attitude adjustment if you were failing in that. Anybody else raised like that? Yeah. You got an attitude adjustment in not respecting others. I mean, you, you could be out of the blue. I, I, back in the olden days, older people helped the younger people, you'd pull into the gas station and four people would come out to service your car. And if you were a little kid during that time, they made their way to the back window and gave you bubble gum and candy. Do you remember this? You do not remember that. Wow. Okay, I'm old. I'm old, old. That was Texas only. Wow. You guys missed out. You missed out. Balloons. Often you got ballooned with a piece of bubble gum stuck in it. You know, you just pulled at the bubble gum, chewed the bubble gum, blew up the balloon. It was awesome. If you failed to say thank you, that was considered being disrespectful to others. You could get an attitude adjustment for that. If you weren't deferential to people when you were walking through the grocery store, if you were disrespectful to your sibling, if you were disrespectful to the neighbor kids, if you were disrespectful to the neighbors, you'd be transgressing authority and respecting others. And you'd really get an adjustment for that. And then if you didn't respect yourself, you'd get an adjustment. Like, you know, if you said, did you brush your teeth? Yes, but you didn't. You'd get an adjustment for that. <laughs> Saturday morning. Saturday morning was house cleaning time when I was growing up. It's everyone pitched in to clean the house on Saturday morning. We all knew the routine. You took all your dirty clothes. You stripped your bed. You did all the things. <clears throat> if somebody found clothes underneath your bed later, that was considered disrespecting yourself. You said you did, but you didn't. You said you did your homework, but you didn't. All of those things that you disrespect yourself, you got adjusted for that. Attitude adjustments. An attitude, it turns out, matters. And so when we start to think about that, and as we were thinking about this whole series, it, there's an attitude adjustment going on as Paul writes to the Galatians. And, and I just thought maybe to go back and think about that for a minute as we kind of wrap up the book. But to think about this, this is a season of Thanksgiving. And what we see has something to do with what we say. So let me just ask you, what do you see? When you look at the world, when you look at the people around you, when you think about you know, how dysfunctional the world is, what do you see? Because it seems to me that people are largely annoyed with other people in our culture. We're largely upset about things. We're largely angry about things. That's what we see. That's what's translating in our inner world. Those people who are messing up the world. Those people who are creating fear and anxiety. <coughs> Those people who are messing it up. So let's review just for a minute about what's going on in the, the letter of Galatians and why Paul wrote it and all of those interesting things that matter so much. Number one, Paul has come to the city of Galatia and he's established a church and it's a powerful, wonderful thing. This church is a church <clears throat> that is experiencing something that is incredibly rare in the world. In fact, I would say unprecedented in the world. So he's come to this diverse Greek city, Roman city now, but certainly Hellenistic in its nature, its culture. And, and, and he's come into this place into a culture that's highly stratified, that, that has these layers economically, 
in social standing, uh, in, in racism. You know, the ancient world was not as enlightened as we are. There was no goal of erasing racial standards or social standards or economic standards. In fact, they were highly reinforced. And in the Roman world, if you were a Roman citizen, you were the top of the food chain and everybody else fell somewhere down that line. All the way down to free people and slave people. You, you, you just had this very, very rigid strata of human beings. And Paul goes to the city of Galatia and he begins to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, in Christ there is no... Jew are Greek, Scythian are barbarian, slave are free, male are female. Do you understand how revolutionary these words are in the culture? People didn't think like that. They'd never heard of such a thing. And if you were at the top of the food chain, you probably weren't that excited about the message. But if you were at the bottom of the food chain, this was incredible news. And then to go into a gathering of people in which this was not just words, it was a reality. Where when you walked in those doors, those social distinctions were erased. Those cultural distinctions were erased. This was one family together. One God, one faith, one baptism, one Lord who was over all and in them all. This was this transformational gospel that was overpoweringly good and powerful. And so Paul plants this church and it thrives. It turns out that this unprecedented community in which these standards had been erased was highly desirable. People longed for it, and they flocked to it. And the church was growing, and and so Paul leaves the church at Galatia to move on with his missionary work, and subsequently, some things begin to happen. The people start to look around at each other and go, you know what we need around here is we need to enforce some standard of living. We, We need to kind of figure out what it would take for us to look at each other and say, hey, Here's what it means to be a part of this church of Jesus Christ. And they got a little help. They got some super apostles who came from Jerusalem and began to talk to them about becoming much more legalistic, much more Jewish in their faith than this sort of freewheeling liberty, grace thing that Paul was preaching. And the folks who had been around in the church for a little while started to go, you know, I think that makes sense because we got some stragglers here we got some folks that aren't really living up to the standard. And if we stop and look around, we can kind of see folks that need a little correction. And they began to think about what it would look like to be a church that sort of enforced these rules. Well, word gets to Paul that this is what's happening. And it's what inspires him to write this letter. He is saying to them, I, I, I just can't imagine that you desire to have a church like that instead of a church rooted in grace. And so he writes the letter. It sort of tells us right away when you're highlighting the, the letter. These are the words he writes in Galatians 1.6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul understands the implications of what's happening. He understands because he has lived it. He's been a part of the Jewish structure. He's been a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He he understands how it works. In fact, as he describes it himself in Philippians 3, this is what he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. 
But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He's basically saying, listen, I understand what it means to get into this idea of a legalistic structure where you keep the rules. But let me explain to you what happened to me. I thought I was getting it right. I so thought I was getting it right and that other people needed to do what I thought that I came to the point of persecuting them and putting people to death because they did not agree with me. It is a dangerous process, he says to the Galatians. Don't go there. Don't live there. Look up. Stop looking around. Look up. Look up. Look up. And then as the letter unfolds, we find out that there are several things happening that are very specific. In fact, you could say the climactic moment in the story happens in chapter 2, verse 11. It reads like this. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw what they, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So if you recall from way back at the beginning of the year, what's going on over at the church at Galatia is simply this. Every single worship gathering ends with the breaking of the body of Christ. It ends with the Eucharist, with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And the symbolism of this is very powerful. In fact, still today, uh, you know, in, in higher church liturgy, uh, you know, churches that are more ecclesiastical, they still end, all of the service leads to the breaking of the body of Christ. In our tradition, it leads to the breaking of the word. You know, we, we've sort of made a transition there. But we didn't make the transition because we feel like the Eucharist is unimportant. It's just that we feel that, you know, the symbolism is simply this, that we gather together, we, we open the word, and then we all find ourselves in constant need of forgiveness and repentance. I don't want to move too quickly past that. The powerful liturgy of the church that ends with the breaking of the body of Christ every single Sabbath is built around the idea that we are all in need of repentance and to come back into the process of becoming more and more like Christ, coming into obedience with his word and with his will. That's a powerful image, isn't it? So that there is some sense in which we need grace. We need grace, we need grace, we need grace. How are we going to end the service? By grace. We're going to say grace. We're going to say grace over you, and we're going to invite you to come and receive grace. What is your need? Receive grace. How did you fail? Receive grace. What is your sin? Confess it. Receive grace. Grace and grace and grace and grace. And we're going to live in grace. It is a cycle of grace. It's not a cycle of the abuse of grace. It's a cycle of grace. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement. Now, we believe in our tradition that you get grace because you ask. That the Eucharist is a symbol. But you can, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The danger, of course, is that we might forget that we're all in need of grace of all the attributes and characteristics a church might possess, my prayer for this church is that it is always a repentant church. Amen? 
that we simply are constantly confessing and receiving forgiveness and striving to be Christ-like, striving to be obedient to God and to his word. Amen? We hang on to that. We live in that. And so the church, the early church, that's what they practiced. They came to this moment, this closing moment of the service, and they broke the body, and they spread the blood, and they, they shared it together. Receive grace, receive forgiveness, receive cleansing, be made whole, be made pure. A great celebration. But they didn't stop there. Then they celebrated the love feast. And the next thing that happened was those who were wealthy had brought along with them a supply of food. Sometimes the poor could bring nothing at all. Sometimes they brought very little. But they all sat down at a table and they shared equally at this table. Now imagine it. In this highly stratified culture where some people weren't even allowed to talk to other people. Some people weren't even allowed to raise their eyes and look at other people. But inside these walls, as they received the grace of Christ, then they poured that grace out on each other. They spoke that grace over each other. They received grace and they spoke grace. Once they saw themselves in light of who he is, All they could see was their own need for God's grace. And when they saw that need in them, that's what they saw in others. And they received it and they gave it. That's how they looked at each other. Oh, you need it. I need it. You need it. I need it. And then Paul says, and then one day Peter notices that some people, and it's very specific, have come from James. James is the head of the council of the church in Jerusalem. And they're trying to figure stuff out over there in Jerusalem. So if you kind of get the politics of the early church, James is leading the council in Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out how Jewish you have to be in order to be Christian. And Peter's kind of associated with them. He's kind of a part of that group over in Jerusalem, and he's very reluctant to share the gospel with Gentiles. If you read the gospel or the book of Acts, you'll see he's very reluctant He has to have a miracle and a vision, and he has to see God actually do something in the house of Cornelius before he goes, oh, I now know, this is his expression, you would think he would know, but this is what he says, I now know God is no respecter of persons, (laughs) but he sees all of us as his children. (laughs) It was a revelation to him, he didn't know. He had been fighting over there. Paul, on the other hand, has been a part of the establishment, he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he's been deeply rooted, but now he's out here. And he's fighting to say, you don't need to be very Jewish in order to be Christian. In fact, I've been Jewish uh, through and through. I've been as Jewish as you can be, and it didn't benefit at all. In fact, I consider it all a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Peter, who's been over to Galatia and has partaken in the meal, he's sat at the table with them. He's laughed. As they passed the food around, he's scooped it out on his plate, and he's eaten it. He's been a part of this fellowship. He's sat at this table. This table, unlike any in human history, where there's no slave or Greek, no Jew or Greek, no Scythian or barbarian, no slave or free, no male or female, but all are one in Christ. And he's been a part of it. And then one day he's participating. He's gone. He's partaken of the grace, the Lord's Supper. He's sitting at the love feast, and he notices that some people have come from Jerusalem, from James, from the council, and he becomes self-conscious. And he starts to look at what's on his plate. And not everything on the plate necessarily meets the rigid standards of the Jewish law. 
That might mean it wasn't necessarily unkosher. It could just simply mean maybe some of the meat there had been offered to an idol and the Jews were still trying to figure out what that all meant in this new grace-filled life of Christianity. They didn't know yet. They were trying to figure it out. And as he became self-conscious, he became aware it's not just what's on my plate. Look at the people I'm sitting with. A good Jew doesn't sit at a table like this with these kind of people, these kind of people. And so he slowly got up from the table and he removed himself and he sat on the sideline and he received the grace of God, but he refused to share it. And then other Jews sitting around the table noticed that Peter had left the table. Because when this starts, it spreads. And one by one, they begin to question if they should be at the table or not. And they begin to think through the rules and what they were supposed to do and not supposed to do. And one by one, they got up and began to leave the table until it was noticeable enough that somebody had come to Paul and said, listen, just so you know, this is what's happening. And he says, even Barnabas, Barnabas who was known for his his sort of gracious, gracious spirit. Even Barnabas was pulled into this and he left the table. So I confronted Peter face to face and told him, you stand condemned. You are practicing a hypocrisy and it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful, powerful moment in the life of the church. We need to see grace. We need to say grace. Leads us into the final chapter and the words now that he speaks. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore them gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I I see three things that I have formed into some questions because I think they matter. And this is what I'm asking of you. As we enter into this holiday season, into this season of Thanksgiving, I'm going to ask you to actively engage in saying grace. Receiving grace, certainly, but saying grace Because saying grace leads to a spirit of gratitude, and a spirit of gratitude leads into a spirit of thanksgiving, and this is the season of thanksgiving, and I don't want us to pretend to give thanks. I don't want us to say thanksgiving over a turkey on a day. I want us to live in a spirit of thanksgiving. Why are we thankful? We're thankful because we're recipients of God's grace. (laughs) Because when we mess up, we confess, and we receive forgiveness We come boldly before the throne of grace that we receive mercy in our time of need. And we go out and we live in obedience to his word. Sometimes we start to look at others differently, don't we? I don't know if you know this, but this is an election season. (laughs) Might be a good season to think about saying grace. Because a whole lot of other stuff is going to get said is getting said (laughs) and it matters number one i see this question who needs restoration who needs restorations 
Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore them gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. When I look at the people in my life, I often see people who need correction. Just me? And I can help them. What I see less often is a person in need of restoration. And much less gentle restoration. When my parents adjusted my attitude, it wasn't a gentle restoration. It was a crisis event. You understand what I'm saying? There wasn't any evolving into a better attitude. In fact, often just the threat of having an attitude adjustment could adjust my attitude. Amen? No, no, no. I'm already changed. I'm already different. See? It's hard to smile and cry at the same time. Skills we used to know. Skills we used to know. How often when I look at people who, I don't know if this, you've observed this, people are annoying. <laughs> and how I relate to people that way. How often I relate to people in my world as people who I like or don't like, I agree with or I don't agree with. But how seldom do I think about what is going on with them. There's a need for some kind of restoration. Paul is advocating and saying, look, when you look around, can your eyes see people in need of restoration? Is that what you see? If you knew everything there was to know about a person, you'd show them mercy. Is that what we see? Do we even see that around our own tables? I don't know how you work. This is how I work. I, I, I have some neighbors that are super cool people. I have some neighbors that are not as cool. I try to say hello and hang out with the people that are cool. I try to avoid the people who are not. Anybody else like that in your neighborhood? You just have neighbors, you just go, yeah, don't, uh, they're outside, I'm not going out right now. That's sort of like a way of seeing things, isn't it? But what if I saw that differently, just a little bit? If I just saw, I don't know what their deal is, but something's going on over there. It makes them not cool. It makes them not easy to be in the neighborhood with. Do I see them as people in need of some kind of restoration? And do I see myself as an ambassador of that kind of restoration? What do my eyes see? Because what my eyes see will dictate what I say. And I would often rather criticize them or gossip about them or think less of them than be involved in some process of restoration, even if the restoration is simply a relationship with them. Even if the restoration is something as simple as, I'm not going to avoid them. I'm going to say hello. I'm going to be friendly. I'm going to be nice. As far as it goes with me, I'm going to live at peace with them because I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what makes them tick. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what's happening to them, but I know what I'm called to be. And I know God pours out grace on me. He must sometimes get frustrated and look at me and go, you again? This again? <laughs> but he doesn't. He just gathers me up one more time. Come on in here. I'll hear the confession. I'll forgive your sins. I'll pick you up. I'll dust you off. Now you get out there. 
Come on. Don't do it again. Amen? Is that how I see other people? I, I receive the grace. I gladly receive it. Do I freely offer it? Let's be honest. Somewhere over the next few weeks, we're going to sit at a table and people are going to be at that table that are a part of our family. But we don't agree with them. And we just don't really go there. We just, uh, just these certain topics start to come up at the table. We go, up, 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 up. Isn't the weather good? Love the weather. Turkey's great, isn't it? <laughs> How often do we avoid, instead of seeing someone in need of restoration? We don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like necessarily. But aren't we the ones who receive grace and therefore we offer grace? And Paul says, see them as people who, yes, they're broken. Yes, something happened. Sin happened. Sin happened. We don't deny it. We don't, yeah, sin. It's not what God wants. He's just talked about the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh. We don't want the fruits of the flesh. We want the fruits of the Spirit. Amen? We know there are consequences. We get it. There's a better life. There's a way to live. There's a calling of the Word. But okay, now what do we do? We restore. We see with eyes of restoration. Then he says this. Who seems to be overloaded? Carry each other's burdens and in this way fulfill the law of Christ. Who seems to be overloaded? Now, if you know this passage, you know that it says this. Bear one, another bur- one another's burdens and in so doing you fulfill the law of Christ. Each person should carry their own load. You guys know it says that, right? It's going to say this almost, you know, in parallel to one another. Carry one another's burdens, carry your own load. Just so you know, there are two different Greek words. Carry each other's burdens is very specific. Help people carry what is too much for one person to carry. Everybody carry your own responsibility. Do do what you're supposed to do. It's two different words. Here's what I do. I sort of consider everybody struggling to not be doing their responsibility. Oh, yeah, just leave me hanging. Because you don't do that. Like when people struggle, instead of going, I think they may be overwhelmed. They may be carrying more than they can possibly carry. And my eyes should see and have compassion and, and try to come around them and help them carry that burden. But what I usually see instead is, well, you ought to be over that by now. You ought to be stronger than that. You mean what? <laughs> what? Come on. What do you see? If I'm going to say grace, I've got to see something different. I've got to get my eyes attuned to a thing that when I look at people and I see their brokenness, I don't see annoyance and I don't practice avoidance. I see maybe there's a need for restoration. One thing's for sure. I've received grace. I ought to offer grace. And if I can be a part of the restoration process, that's a different way of looking at brokenness. It's a different way of relating to dysfunction in the world. It's a different way of relating to dysfunction in other human beings. I'm a part of the restoration team. I'm not a part of the condemnation team. I'm not a part of the criticism team. I'm not a part of the gossip team. I'm a part of the restoration team. I need it. I think I can assume that everybody else does too. And I'm a part of the helping to carry burdens. And I don't know which things are burdens and which things are loads. 
I honestly don't know. Only God knows. I don't know where the line of my responsibility versus I need help. Yeah, I don't know. I would say this. Most of us fake it. Amen? Most of us are getting through it, pretending that it's our load and we're carrying it. But we're not very functional. Like, how you doing? I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted all the time. Why are you exhausted all the time? Because I'm just dragging through it. I'm just just doing what I got to do to get through it. What if we looked at the world and said, you know what? I'm going to be a part of helping bear burdens. How you doing? Do I even have eyes to see when people struggle? Do I even have eyes to see that people are in some need of restoration or that they may be overwhelmed? Do I see it? Can I even answer the question, who seems overloaded? Because when I look at life from the perspective of I'm good and other people are not, other people, got, I get it, but they don't, I can't even see the pain around me. Which leads us to the third point. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, this seems out of context. You know, restore them gently, bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. And if you think you're something and you're not, you better get over yourself. It just seems out of context, except it's not, is it? Because why can't I see who needs to be restored and why can't I see who's overloaded? Because this is what I see. This is what I look at every day. And you know what? If I'm honest, this is what I care about. How do I feel? How's the world affecting me? How does this suit me? How do I want things to go? How do I think they should be different? Scripture says where there is no vision, the people perish. Where people no longer see God, they stumble around. Once we get our eyes off of God and His grace and His calling and where we're going and we start to look around at each other, Something bad happens in here. We sort of start to cannibalize our own soul. And we fill ourselves up with what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the people around us and what's wrong with me. He will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on him. Once I get my face down in here, I don't know if you know this, there's a lot in here that doesn't work well. And I'm invited to get my eyes off of this, onto the grace I receive. I I see myself as a recipient of the grace of God, and because I see myself as a recipient of the unselfish grace of a loving God, then I see the world in need. My eyes are freed up to see people actually hurting, to to actually get out of my own head and my own thoughts. This is hard even in our own homes, isn't it? I mean, how many of us walk around our homes grumbling because we're the only ones who ever do anything? You don't have to lift your hands. And if there's five people in your house, they all think that. I'm the only one that ever did that. Why am I the only one that ever does that? 
And then we look at other people and they go, what's wrong with these people? Don't they see? Don't they know? Don't they get it? Don't they understand? Once we start looking in here, everybody else becomes highly dysfunctional. (laughs) But what if I looked at the world differently? I'm a recipient of grace, the free grace of God. As often as I come, he gives me mercy. He gives me grace. He restores me. He makes me whole again. In fact, he takes the past and he buries it in the sea of his forgetfulness and he picks me up. I want to be that person too. I I want to say that to others. I'm coming into a season of Thanksgiving. If I'm in here, I will not be thankful. If I'm in here, I will will have a very strict accounting of the deficits. (laughs) Because in here, I can tell you who is a liability and who is an asset. And the truth is, once I get way in here, nobody is an asset but me. Everybody else is a liability. You people are acting like it's just me. I'm just being honest. If I get far enough down in here, then I'm the only one that gets it. And everybody else is a little bit off. (laughs) But when I get my head up here, I'm like, you know what? We're all a little off, but we're also all an asset. And some people need some restoration. I want to be a part of the restoration team. And some people need to have their burdens carried, and I want to be a part of that solution. And I don't want to get all selfish and self-centered and all focused in here. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me. I want you to get an actual piece of paper. Now, I know for some of you, you don't have any in your home. (laughs) That everything is digital. And if you just said, I just have to do it in my phone, okay, then do it. Get somewhere where you can have something And I'm going to invite you to enter into a discipline in this season. I want you to pray that God would open your eyes to people in your world that need some restoration and need some help. I want you to to just start to make a list of actual names, not just theoretical stuff. I know that five minutes from now, you're going to forget what we talked about. I do too. I get it. Take a piece of paper, open a note in your phone, and as God brings names to you, as God, you encounter people, people at school, people at work, people in your family, people who drop you an email this week, and that prompting of the Holy Spirit says, put them on your list. And if you don't do one other thing in this season except pray for every single person on that list every single day, It will change how you see things. And it will change how you say things. Will you enter into that with me? We're going to add to it. This is just Sunday one of the series. I'm going to be inviting you to, to, as we come down this last chapter, based on all this stuff that's happened. Now, here are the action points. That's how Paul writes. Here are all the ethical constructs, all the theological constructs. And now, since all of that is true, here's what I want you to do. Restore those. Bear one another's burdens. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. What I hope and pray is that as we see differently, we'll say differently. And what we'll find ourselves saying in this season is grace. God, would you please help us? Even as we sing these words, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I pray that each of us would do work with you, would respond to your word, 
would settle a few things. Maybe even in these moments, you've, you've already begun to bring names to our minds. Do not let us go through this day without sitting down and taking specific action. Even if all we do is pray over these names, it will change us. We pray your grace over this congregation, over those watching online, those that will watch through the course of this week. We're inviting you, we're asking you to allow us to see differently in, in this season of election and all the things that go with it in this season in which our culture is so highly divided. Would you let us be ambassadors of reconciliation and agents of grace? Freely we have received. Let us freely give. We pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said together. Amen. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.